I'm a little depressed this week. Can I, can I confess that to you? I don't know if it was the weather change or if it was that our We Are series was over. I kind of felt like I was so excited about our We Are series. I've been looking forward to it and planning that series for about a year. And this week it was like, it's over. But then I had to remind myself, it's not over. We can continue to do it. Um, but I've, I was kind of wrestling this week with what to preach. And the Lord led me to this passage. Um, and it's really about the new way. And I don't know if, if you're like me, but sometimes I have a heart. I'm, I'm actually a person who's used to change. I grew up in an Air Force family. We moved all the time. I'm, I'm not very change adverse. And yet, even for me, it is sometimes hard to let go of old things. Do you find this to be true? You just, you want things to be the way they've been. You want to, to hold on to something that you've always had. For me, the best example is probably this hat. My wife says it's time for it to go, but I love this hat. I don't know why. When I put it on at home, I feel cozy and comfy and relaxed, and so she has been trying to throw it away for months now, and I will not let her. Maybe, maybe you have something in your life that's like this, this old hat. It's old, and it's probably time for it to go, but it is hard to release it. Well, today Jesus is going to talk to us about releasing the old for the new. He's going to come and he's going to offer us the new way. And it's a radical and wonderful and life-changing teaching. It's from Matthew chapter 9. And so if you have a Bible today, open it to Matthew chapter 9. Grab a Bible out of the pew rack, if you will. It's on page 790. It's actually two sections of scripture here that are really one section of scripture. They're divided by a little sort of subtitle that's not really in the text, but it's two sections of scripture. It's a story and some teaching and an illustration. And this morning, I'm going to start at the very end. I'm going to start where Jesus concludes, because here is where I think he gives us the larger vision of what he's saying, and everything else sort of falls underneath this. So Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start... In verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. As we dive in today, Jesus uses two images to essentially make the same point for us here. The first one is the image of sewing a a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. And the idea is simply this, that when fabric gets washed, when it gets wet, it will dry and then shrink. Sometimes, maybe you can relate with this, I buy a new t-shirt, and it fits just right. It's soft, it's cozy, the proportions are just right, it's long enough, which for me is a really big challenge to find a t-shirt that is long enough, and I'm so thrilled with the t-shirt, and then my wife dries it, and it is never the same, and I never wear it again. Maybe this happens to you. Um, This is... Jesus using just ancient world 
like laundry common sense here. He's saying if, you, if your patch, if the patch you're using to kind of sew on and patch up a hole in your garment is not shrunk, it's new, it's unshrunk, and your garment is old and it's already shrunk, when you wash the garment, the patch will shrink, the garment won't shrink, and the whole thing will just be a mess, right? Then Jesus uses this other image of new wine bursting old wineskins. This one's a little more foreign to us because... We don't get our wine in skins, do we? Our wine comes in... Why the hesitancy here? It's okay. There's freedom in this place. Our wine comes in... Bottles. Or if you have my wine budget, boxes. Um, but in Jesus' day, wine was stored and put into a, a skin. And you can see a picture of one there on the screen. And when wine is new, the fermenting process is robust. And the wine will give off many gases. And these gases will put pressure on the skin. And they will cause the skin to expand. Now, if the skin is new then it will be able to expand. It will have some stretch to it. But if the skin were to be old, it would have already been stretched and it will not really have much give. And so the pressure of the wine fermenting will, in fact, burst it open. So if you put new wine, wine with a lot of life, wine that is still giving a lot, off a lot of fermenting gases into old skins, the pressure will build up and you will end up with wine, Jesus says, all over your carpet, which is a bummer and hard to get out. So again, Jesus is just using common sense here to tell us something important, to make a revolutionary point. And here it is. Following me, following Jesus, is not just a patched up, refilled version of what has always been. The kingdom life, Jesus says, I have come to offer is not just the old system of religion you're used to with a little Jesus patch stitched on. If you try to take the with God life Jesus offers and pour it into religiosity, things are going to burst and you're going to have a mess on your hands. You see, a lot of times, people, this is how we approach Jesus. We think he has come to just offer us new and improved religion, a better version of religion. Here's how this will play out. Oftentimes, I'll hear about people who were raised in the church. Maybe they've dabbled with faith, with Christ, with religion for years, and then something happens. Life goes sideways. They get to a place where they finally figured out that materialism won't satisfy their, satisfy their soul, and so they decide, now I'm going to get serious. Now I'm going to get serious about church or about faith or about Christianity. And, and the approach is this. I've always been religious, but now I'm going to really be religious. Now I'm going to take my religion seriously. Now I'm going to pray more and serve more and attend more. Now I'm going to get really serious about following the rules of the Bible. No more playing around. And friends, Jesus is here this morning to tell you this will not work. It is not 
what he wants for you, and it is not what he's come to offer. He says you're headed for a torn shirt or wine on your carpet because following him is not just religion with a little Jesus patch. Go back up with me to verse, verse 9 where we begin. We'll dive in a little deeper. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. This story begins with a little phrase that you might be tempted to skip over. As Jesus went on from there. So our first question should probably be, where is there? Well, there is actually... Uh, the little fishing village on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. You can see it there on the map. Capernaum was actually where Jesus lived. It was where he spent much of his time. It was his hometown, his home base of sorts for ministry when he was up north in the region of the Galilee. And it's in this little fishing village where Jesus, we're told, stumbles upon this guy named Matthew who is sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, let me give you a couple of reasons why if you were a first century reader and you understood some things about ancient Israel, this would not surprise you. You would not be surprised that Jesus, while in Capernaum, stumbles upon a tax collector. First of all, Capernaum was located along the main north-south travel road of the entire Middle East. It was a road called the Via Maris, which means way of the sea. You can see it on the map there. It's a little white line that kind of runs along the western edge of the Sea of Galilee. And the Via Maris was important. It was the main road that connected the empires of the north with the south. The empires of Egypt and northern Africa in the south with Asia Minor and Europe in the north. And so because it was the main road, tons and tons of goods and supplies flowed up and down this road. And of course, the Roman government wanted to tax those goods. It was their way of making money. Furthermore, Capernaum, here's the second fact about Capernaum, it sat right on the border between two distinct territories. Right on the border between the territory ruled by a guy named Philip and the other uh, his brother, a guy who ruled the Galilee, a man by the name of Herod Antipas. Capernaum was right on Herod Antipas's side of this border. And one just kind of quick side note here, just so you can have a bigger scale. Let's pan back for a minute. It's almost Christmas. We're almost there. Have you started singing Christmas carols yet? It's against the rules. You're not allowed to do it before Thanksgiving. My daughter tried to do it this week. I had to scold her. Um, it's almost Christmas, and you remember when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, that's down in the south, that's down kind of south of Jerusalem, he is such a threat to the ruling king, a man by the name of King Herod, that what does Herod do? Yeah, he has all the children, two years old and younger, murdered. Why? Because he's, he's nervous, he's threatened by Jesus. That Herod is Herod the Great. Well, shortly after that moment, Herod the Great dies, and his territory is divided up amongst his sons, one of whom is this guy we're talking about today, Herod 
Antipas. And Herod Antipas gets this, this section of his father's territory up in Galilee. So Herod Antipas now rules in Galilee. And Herod was just as cruel and sadistic as his dad. He did not care about the Jewish people. He did not care about the people he ruled. And he was notorious for taxing his subjects so severely that they were forced to live in abject poverty. The Jews who lived up north in the Galilee lived right on the edge of death. And this was largely because Herod took so much of their money. Herod taxed the Jewish people into poverty so that he could live in luxury. And one of the main places he did this was in this little town where Jesus is today called Capernaum. Herod would tax all the goods that were entering into his territory and all the goods that were leaving his territory. In fact, that little phrase in verse 9, it says he found Matthew at the tax collector's booth. That's a little Greek word, teleonion, which literally means the place of custom tolls. See, Capernaum was like Herod's Galilee custom headquarters. It was where all goods were taxed, going over, back and, back and forth over the border. So here's the big question. Do you think the Jewish people of the Galilee liked Herod? Do you think Herod was popular? Do you think people toasted and cheered and prayed blessings on Herod? No. The people hated Herod. They loathed Herod. But let me tell you who they hated even more. The Jews who worked to collect Herod's money. And Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. You see, Matthew is telling us this. This is a guy who was not just a sinner, not just a traitor, not just a sellout. He was a man who was living the good life because he was willing to overcharge the poor and impoverished people of his own heritage for Herod and for Rome and for selfish gain. This is not a well-loved popular person. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, by the way, pause, This is a tiny, teeny little fishing village, right? Why are there many tax collectors there? I just told you. Because this is customs headquarters, right? There's a lot of tax collectors there because there's a lot of taxing happening in Capernaum. You ever notice how Jesus sort of stumbles upon tax collectors a lot in the Gospels? How many of you have never met a tax collector in your entire life? And Jesus meets them all the time. This is why. Because he lives in Capernaum, and, there's, and tax collectors abound in Capernaum. Okay, here we go. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, notice the focus here. Matthew is not subtle. What's he trying to point out to us? What's his big concern? What's the big issue in this moment? It's not that Jesus knows some of these people or that he talks to them or that he engages them casually. It's that he's willing to eat with them. He's willing to share a meal with these tax collectors, these traitors, 
And in the Jewish culture, friends, this would have been a huge statement. For us to share a meal with someone is, is a big step. But for them, it was enormous. It would be like saying, I accept you. I relate to you. We are friends and not just Facebook friends, real friends. And now Jesus, as he often did, will take this controversy, this moment where he is accused of eating with Matthew and his cronies, these low lives of society, he'll take this moment of controversy and he will make his point. Verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, a lot of times when people read this story, I'm afraid that the takeaway is this. If you want to be a good Christian, if you want to be like Jesus, here's how you do it. Go find some bad people to hang out with. If you really want to follow Jesus, grab some sinners and have dinner with them. In other words, go find some people that you are better than to hang out with. Let me suggest to you that this is not Jesus' point here. In fact, I'll say that Jesus came to challenge the entire system of religion where we determine who is better and who is worse. Jesus doesn't eat with Matthew and his crew because he likes bad people more than he likes good people. People who do the right thing, people who are loyal to their countrymen, people who stood up for, for injustice and didn't buy into the, the, the terrible systems of his day. Jesus doesn't like, not like those people. I'm not here for you. I'm here for the really bad folks. That's not the message of this passage. He actually says this. Jesus is saying, using rules to divide people into good people and bad people, I've come to abolish that. I've come to take that off the table. I have come to do away with religion. You see, Jesus did not say, I have come just to sow a little Jesus patch on the top of your religion. I've not just come to sort of give you a few more and better rules so that you can be better religious people. He says, I have come for a whole new reason for a whole new way of understanding and relating to God. Religion, friends, is simply this, a way of justifying yourself. A way of justifying yourself. Religion is a set of rules by which we divide the world into two kinds of people, good people who follow the rules and bad people who don't. Good people who think and believe and act the right way and bad people who don't think and believe and act the right way. And when you understand religion in this way, all of a sudden you come to understand that everyone is religious. Everyone actually falls into this way of thinking. Everyone has a set of criteria by which they divide the world into good and bad, right and wrong. For conservatives, it's certain moral issues. The certain group of moral issues is what makes you good and bad, right? It's, it's, it's right and wrong. It's traditional values. This is what matters. This is what really makes you a good person. If you follow these rules, 
But I'll suggest to you that even the most non-conservative, non-church-going atheists have a set of rules that they use to divide people as well. If you're tolerant, if you're fair, if you're open-minded, if you believe this certain way, if so, then you're good, then you're right. See, everybody has a way of saying, here's the good people, here's the bad people. Listen sometime to non-church people. Because I think church people are really bad at this. We should look at ourselves in the way we divide people up between good and bad, right and wrong. But understand that we are just like everyone else. I'll listen to my non-church friends sometimes, and I think, you have more rules to divide people into good and bad than I do. You have more criteria for what makes a person right or wrong than I do. Tim Keller says it this way. This is beautiful. Religion is not just the way formal, traditional religions operate. It's the way the heart operates. The only difference between liberals and conservatives is where they divide the world. They're both religious. And in our passage today, Jesus says, And I align with neither. I have not come to reinforce the old religious rules or institute a new set of religious rules. I have come to free you from the system where to be accepted by God, you have to follow certain rules. Religion says if you follow the right rules in a right enough way, then you can be in. Jesus says, I have come to receive people who know that on their own, they can never make it in. This is why Jesus talks about sacrifice. He says, learn what this means, right? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Why does he bring up sacrifice? Because sacrifice was the primary rule by which people in his day tried to justify themselves before God. How did you justify yourself to God? You sacrificed. And friends, I'll, I'll say this to you. We are tempted to sacrifice as well. Yeah, we're not killing animals, but we're tempted to make sacrifices to God for his approval. We do certain things to please him and, other, and we don't do other things to please him. And the temptation is that this is what makes us Christians. I'm a, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a follower of Jesus. Why? Because I do these things and I don't do these things. That's religion. That's rule following. That's self-justification. But Jesus says what? He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What's mercy? Not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you've earned. Do you know what mercy feels like? Do you know how undermining mercy is to a religious system? A religious system says, here's what you have to do, and here's what you mustn't do, and if you do it, and if you don't do it, then you're acceptable. And mercy says, ah, you get what you don't deserve. You get what you haven't earned. You see, it it obliterates the whole thing. Mercy, friends, is extremely powerful, and it's also very undermining to a religious mindset and system. Friday night, just two nights ago, I was... Uh, tasked with taking my son to his 
basketball practice. He had a little like one hour walk through. He had a tournament yesterday and the team is a bit overzealous and they decided to do a walk through, like a team walk through from eight to nine at night on a Friday. And I'll just say I had a bad attitude about having to take him to this little walkthrough. I'm thinking, they're seventh graders. They don't need to do a walkthrough on Friday night. Get a life, people, you know? And so my wife and I rochambeaued for it. And, of course, I lost and had to make the drive. And to make matters even worse, on the way to taking Dax to his practice, I was just about to the middle school when all of a sudden I noticed I was being tailed pretty closely by what seemed to be a police car. And as I turned into the school to park and drop him off, sure enough, the lights go on. That's a fun moment. And so Dax is like, what's happening, Dad? And I'm like, I don't know. Just jump out and go. And so he's like, am I allowed to get out of the car? And I'm like, run for it, son. Run for it. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) Uh, So he hops out. The officer hops out and tells my son, like, you go on. You go on. It's your dad who I'm after, right? He comes up to the window and says, I said... How are, you, how are you this morning, sir? My, my Air Force kid comes out anytime I like, deal with police officers. It's like, sir, ma'am, all that stuff. So, and he says, do you have any uh, idea why I pulled you over tonight? And I said, and I really had no idea because I didn't think I was speeding, but it was my best guess. I said, oh, was I speeding? He said, no, uh, you missed that stop sign back there. And I was like, oh, I, I kind of rolled through it, and he was like, oh, you, you did more than roll through it. You just blew right through it. I had no clue at all. And so I was like, oh, I'm really sorry. And he says, license and registration. So then I'm like deciding, what do I do from here? What do, the, what do I do in this moment? Um, and as I'm getting my you know, registration out of my glove box, I decide I'm, this is my route. This is my strategy. And I just said, hey, any chance I could get some mercy and just give me a warning? That just, you thought I was going to pull the pastor card, didn't you? See, that's beneath me, guys. I'm not blaming Jesus for my bad driving, but I will appeal for mercy. So I just asked for mercy. And the guy just looked at me, and he just handed me back my registration. He goes, I'll be right back. And I could tell right away he's going to give me a warning. I was like, oh, thank you, God. You know, you're so good to me. You know, he came back, and um, he gave me a warning. So the night that was going to be like a big drag, it was a big drag to take my son to, to practice, became like the greatest night ever. I was like, I'm so happy to be here. I just got mercy. I didn't get a ticket. My wife's not going to kill me when I get home. You know, it was such a, such a good moment. But it, but it was a reminder of the power of mercy because it had nothing to do with what I deserved. It had nothing to do with what I had earned. And all of a sudden, I began to see In that moment, very clearly, I'm no better than anyone else. You see, when you receive mercy, it kills the whole, I'm better than you. There's these people and those people. You see, mercy levels the playing field. I desire mercy, God says, not sacrifice. He's saying to follow me is this shift from religion to relationship, I'm accepted because I do the right things, to I'm received even when I don't. Friends, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he? Why would he do this? Because they were good? No. Because they were bad? No. Probably just because they wanted to have him for dinner. 
Probably because there were just people who wanted to be around him. And Jesus says, I'll be around anybody who invites me for dinner. Because in my mind, there aren't good people and bad people. There are just people in need of God's mercy. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In other words, how is it that we are following the rules and your guys aren't? How is it that we're making this huge sacrifice for God and you guys aren't? Now, there are a number of reasons the Jews of Jesus' day fasted, but top of the list was this, mourning and penance for sin. You would fast in Jesus' day to show God just how sad you were about your sin. I'm so sorry for how bad I've been, God, that I will make it up to you by not eating, as if that's really going to help. Let me pay some penance, Lord, to make up for all the bad stuff I've done. How is it, Jesus, that your disciples aren't trying to pay the price for their sin? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Now, literally, this is a wonderful response. The Greek translation of this verse actually reads, how can the children of the bride chamber mourn? while he is with them. And Jesus draws here on a very familiar Jewish image that we might sort of miss. You see, in a Jewish wedding, the couple would not go away for a honeymoon. Instead, they would spend about a week, sometimes longer, at home after they were married with a number of honored guests in this, just this continuous and ongoing party. A week-long celebration. And during that week, the closest friends of the bride and of the groom would share all the joys and all the celebration of of this week-long party with them. And these closest friends were called children of the bride chamber. You were stoked if you were selected to be a a children of the bride chamber because you were at the very center of this week-long party. It would be like the highlight of your year. How can the children of the bride chamber mourn while he is with them? See, religion says mourn your sin, pay your penance, engage in sad, somber, solemn acts of religiosity in order to make up for the many wrongs you have committed. But Jesus says, no, that is not my way. My way is one of celebration. My way is that of joy. My way is like the biggest party you've ever experienced. And that's exactly how Christians are known in our world, right? As big celebratory partiers. Maybe we're missing something. Jesus says, celebrate, have joy, party. Why? Because by sheer association with me, you have been invited to the greatest party of all time. Not because you've paid penance for your sin, not because you've followed the rules, not because of anything you've done, but just because you're associated with me, you can get into the celebration. You see, friends, that's that's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news isn't come to church and we're going to give you a list of rules to follow so that you can be good enough for God someday. That's not good news, friends. That's religion. 
That's putting weight on your back. Jesus says, no, come and experience the free invitation into life with the Father, into the the party that starts now and goes on forever with me. And I bring this up this week because one thing I'm, I'm really sensitive to and want us to be very aware of is this. We've got these distinctives, these seven things we've gone over for the last seven weeks that we want to define us and mark us as a church family. And yet, friends, I want to say this. These are not rules of religion. These are not our religious guidelines as a community. These are not the things that you have to do in order to be accepted by God or to be accepted by us. You see, Jesus says, mine is the way of mercy. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve and can never earn on your own, and that's full acceptance by my Father through my death, through my resurrection. And when you experience me, and when you experience mercy, and when that mercy starts to take root in your heart and soul, then guess what will flow out? These things. But they mustn't be rules for us. This mustn't become religion. This is relationship with a God who loves us so much that he sent his son to die on a cross to be raised to new life, to defeat death so that you could join the party. And all you have to do is invite him for dinner. You see, Jesus will hang out with anyone who wants to invite him for dinner. Have you invited him for dinner in your life yet? Have you asked him to come over? Are you tired of trying to earn his approval and earn his love and prove to yourself and everyone else that you're a good person, that you're smart enough, that you're good enough, that you're moral enough, that you're progressive enough, that you're tolerant enough, that you're fair enough? Are you tired of trying to earn it? Because Jesus says you don't have to, and you can't. You're just accepted. Just ask me into your life. Just ask me to come over, and I'm there. If you haven't done that, friends, if you haven't asked Jesus to be Lord and Savior and friend in your life, what are you waiting for? That's what this this whole thing's about. That's what everything we're doing here centers on and lands on. Do you know Jesus? Have you made him Lord and Savior? Have you received the free gift that he wants to offer you? And that is life with him now and forever through his death and his resurrection. You don't have to perform some amazing religious feat. You just have to say, God, I'm done trying to do it on my own. I receive what you've given me. And if you want to pray that prayer today again, because sometimes I need to pray it again and be reminded of it, or if you need to pray it today for the very first time, I'm going to do it right now. I'm just going to pray. And if you just in your own words would talk to God, just tell him what you need to tell him today. Just ask him to come into your life, to be your Lord, to be your Savior, and he will do it. He will come over. He has dinner with anyone who invites him over. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take this meal, the bread and the cup, which is just another way of declaring, that's why I'm in. That's why I'm accepted, because of God's great mercy. So let's pray. Talk to God if you need to this morning. Father, today... We come before you and say we're, we're sorry for trying so hard to win your approval. 
We're sorry that we, that we so badly want to earn it and deserve it sometimes, Lord. We surrender to you again and we're reminded again that you love us no matter what, that you receive us just as we are and that you come and you offer us mercy. That means that even when we're doing well, you receive us and even when we're doing poorly, you receive us, Lord. That our, that our accomplishments and behaviors have nothing to do with your great love for us. Help us to understand that, Lord. Help us to feel your warmth and grace and acceptance. We thank you for your son, for his death, for his resurrection, for the price he paid that we might be renewed and restored in relationship to you. Help us to walk with you, Lord. Help us to walk in mercy and protect us from religion. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.